Will you stand firm in your faith as our culture implodes? Letter to the American Church, the latest bestseller from Eric Metaxas, begs the church to defend the voiceless and to speak against the powers of our day that silence the cry for freedom. Metaxas inspires Christians to step into the calling God has placed on our lives at this pivotal point in history. Now is the time to champion the truth against a hostile culture. Get your copy of Letter to the American Church, available now at Amazon.com and wherever books are sold. Welcome to the Christian Outlook, the weekly radio program that sorts through the issues in our fast-changing world in a way that honors your Christian faith. Brought to you in partnership with our sponsor, the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy. In times that are changing so quickly, what should the church be doing? Alistair Bay. We've got the best news that is available in this entire increasingly collapsing world. What lessons should we be learning from the renewal movements we've seen in Asbury and elsewhere? Commit to growing in my personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Plus, it's a tough, tough time to be a teen. Focus on the family's Joni DeBrito. They are just absorbing so much information, and they're overwhelmed. They're overwhelmed with exposure to traumatic things that we didn't have to see on a daily basis. I'm Don Crow. Great to be with you. Coming to you from my home station of WAVA in Washington, D.C. You can catch my program each weekday through our live stream at WAVA.com and also through the TuneIn radio app. Take a moment to follow the Christian Outlook on Twitter at TC Outlook. That's TC Outlook. Thanks for joining us. We'll be looking at something that I hope is at the center of what you've been thinking about. Our nation and culture are in the midst of changes that are both substantive and swift. It's hard to sort through all the issues. The logical question comes up, what should the church be doing? Alistair Begg answers for us. He was a guest of Rick Probst and Dan Ratcliffe on Faith Talk AM 970 in Atlanta. I saw a video, and it was a special pastor's conference I think you had at your church, and you allowed them to ask you questions. Oh, yeah. And and I loved it. But uh, I just thought there are a lot of pastors out there, you know, we're we're post-COVID, folks trying to shake the trees and get numbers and trying different things, and the old stuff's not working, and folks are disappointed. And I thought, you know, since you really have a lot of wisdom and you spoke to those pastors, that you would speak to the pastors that watch us and listen to us here, maybe some tips, some insights. Uh, we just keep on keeping on. What should they do? Well, it's it's interesting. The thing that you're referring to is, uh, I, I assume, our basics conference. We began that in 2000, and we said, well, let's have a, a conference for pastors. Somebody said, what should we call it? I said, well, let's just call it basics. And I think the the thing that is so foundational and so easily missed is that as pastors, as servants of the Word of God, I mean, we have the greatest story ever told. We've got the best news that is uh, available in this entire increasingly collapsing world. And so one of the things that I'm wanting to say, first of all, to myself is that, you know, when Paul is getting ready to leave Timothy, he passes the baton to him and he says, you know, there's going to be all kinds of chaos going on. But as for you, keep your head, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist Hmm. and discharge all the duties of your ministry. And sure, the context changes and the framework that we've been living in for these past months is definitely very different. We know that here as well. But the, the temptation is to think, 
well, we better find another way to do this. When mm-hmm. in actual, we may have to be a little more creative in the way that we communicate. We may have to work a little harder on our preparation. I mean, some of us uh, should be taken out and beaten for the lack of preparation that uh, needs to be part and parcel of standing before uh, a group of people on a, on a regular basis. And uh, that is, th- that's not for the faint of heart. I'd love to get your thoughts, Alistair, on the recent revivals that we're seeing in college campuses. Obviously, we've heard of the Asbury revival that's going on in Asbury College, and it looks like it's starting to spread to some other colleges as well. Your your thoughts on, on that? Well, I haven't been there to participate, and I only know what has been reported. But this, it seems to me, just as an observer, has a lot to do with emotion. It has a lot to do with mm-hmm. singing. It has a lot to do with that kind of community dimension. But I, I don't, as I say, I don't know. I want to rejoice in every evidence of the moving of God, particularly right. amongst our young college population. Alex, yeah, and that's, that's what I was most excited about is because that age group just seems to be so desirous of just leaving the faith and turning their backs on it. And to see that happening at a college campus, to me at least, that gives me a little bit more hope for that generation. Yeah, but again, it's very, very important that whenever there is an evidence of the moving of the Spirit of God, it is mm-hmm. always going to drive people to the Word of God, and it is always yeah. going to drive people to the Son of God. So that yeah. if it goes along a track that doesn't ultimately take you there, then you might wonder really what's going on. I mean, somebody just saying to me earlier today that uh, they have a, a child at one of the professed Christian colleges in the South, And Mm -hmm. uh, their student as a freshman in uh, Bible 101 was introduced to a lecture on how the Bible uh, may be viewed as a collection of myths. Mm -hmm. And this is at a a professed, you know, a a college that would regard itself as being within the Christian ethos. So it shows you just how vitally important it is that whenever we see evidences of that, that people then are being anchored in the truth of God's Word. I'd be surprised if most of you have not been tracking with reports in recent weeks coming out of Asbury University, Tennessee. We've seen reports coming from other university settings as well. What should you and I be thinking about these movements? Greg Allen is pastor of Bethany Bible Church in Portland, Oregon. He joined Georgine Rice in studio at 93.9 FM, KCBQ, Portland. Now, we use the word revival and awakening quite often. Perhaps we would do well to define those words in a way that we can understand, not just in the context of this uh, series of events, but in general and historically, what is a revival well, and what is an awakening? Are they interchangeable? Yeah, that, that's a great question because when we talk about revival, it's not a word that stands on its own. We have to ask the question, reviving what? Yeah. You know, there's got to be some direction this goes. Revival, in my understanding, is a gracious work of God. Number one, it's a gracious work. It's not something that we create. It's not something we schedule. It's a gracious work of God in response to the concerted prayers of his people by which the Holy Spirit profoundly renews the church from out of a period of spiritual decline and grants such remarkable power and success to the proclamation of the gospel that it dramatically transforms a generation. That's so, that's beautifully written, though. Yeah. And, you know, when I think about what's happening on college campuses, these are young men and women, and we're talking about Christian colleges primarily. These are young men and women who are presumably being trained for leadership in the church mm-hmm. and for 
there to, uh, to be an event like this um, in which they are recognizing their utter dependence on God and, and confessing their weakness and asking him to revive them, uh, it seems to me has the potential to have an impact perhaps in a generation, perhaps in a number of years as they assume leadership mm. roles in various ways as politicians, as pastors, as uh, as church leaders and so on. Well, you know, revival in the past has often led to a new generation of, of God's servants rising up uh, for their time. Uh, revivals aren't just experiences where people, you know, recommit to reading the Bible daily or something, but God raises up a generation for a generation. In other words, he'll raise up leaders for their time to dramatically impact their generation. You asked earlier about the difference between revival and awakening. A revival, as I understand it, is where God does a work by the power of the Holy Spirit to renew his church and to renew their vision and renew their commitment. An awakening, in my understanding, has more to do with the, uh, the unsaved world where maybe perhaps uh, before then the people of this world don't care about their soul, they don't care about their condition before God. But suddenly the Holy Spirit does a mighty work in them to help them to see their need. Some have said that in a time of revival, what often happens is that the sinner goes and looks for the evangelist. In John chapter 16, verses 26 through 27, Jesus talked about the ministry of the Holy Spirit, and he said, When the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will testify of me, and he will also bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. And he later on speaks about how the Holy Spirit would then convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. It's not a thing that we can do, but the Holy Spirit has the ability to reach into the inner recesses of the human heart to convict and, and to reveal the truth. And what I see is in a revival, God also works in the unbelieving world to awaken them, equipping his church to proclaim the message of the gospel clearly and boldly and in his power. And the unbelieving world, given the ability to hear, respond, repent, and believe. Mm. One of the phrases that came up often in Asbury was radical humility. And mm. it's, again, that recognition that I am utterly dependent on God, that in order for things to change, in order for things to uh, move in the right direction, it is utterly dependent upon a move of God. Mm -hmm. And I simply make myself available and I acknowledge that in my own efforts, I'm incapable of making the kind of impact that's necessary how do you and I pray for revival and seek revival? First of all, recognizing our radical humility and our, our dependence on God. How do we participate in what I believe is an ongoing cry of the hearts of God's people all across the country, that there would be revival in our land that would stretch across the globe? Mm -hmm. How do we um, partake in that? We may not be a part of a large group or a large church that's involved in that kind of praying. What, what do I do? Well, obviously, you know, you talk about your, your involvement in a revival. It might not be that you, you experience what you're describing that we're seeing in another generation uh, undergoing right now. But a revival always, as I've said earlier, is, is a product of the concerted prayers of God's people. And so I would say certainly one of the things that we can be doing is faithfully 
uh, and humbly praying and asking God for this with our eyes open, watching the times that we're living in, Mm -hmm. paying attention to what's going on, paying attention to history, paying attention to what God has done in the past, paying attention to his scriptures where he's told us stories in, in the scriptures themselves of revivals and transformation of people's lives. But one of the things that I strongly believe in also is in a pursuit of a personal revival, a personal recommitment of certain things in our lives. I would say that if we were going to do that, I'd want to commit to growing in my personal relationship with Jesus Christ. A revival in the end, whatever else it may include, has to highlight Jesus Christ and no other. He is the premier focus of of, of, of awakening and revival. So ourselves to commit to grow daily in that personal relationship and obedience to him and faithfulness to him. We grow in our repentance of sin as we grow in that relationship with Jesus in love and in mercy and in a way that he knows best to do. He confronts us about mm-hmm. things in our lives that need to change. Obey him. Coming up, Christian concern for our youth today. They are just absorbing so much information, and they're overwhelmed. They're overwhelmed with exposure to traumatic things that we didn't have to see on a daily basis. They're overwhelmed with the messages they're getting in the culture. The Christian Outlook returns in a moment. Celebrating our 25th anniversary, the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy invites you to learn from one of our beloved teachers, Dr. Gordon Lloyd, in a four-part webinar series titled The Roots of Political Economy, Capitalism versus Socialism. This free video series teaches foundational principles of free markets, as well as the philosophers behind socialism. Find out more at go.pepperdine.edu slash capitalism. That's go.pepperdine.edu slash capitalism. Welcome back to the Christian Outlook. I'm Don Crow. Last month, the CDC came out with a report that caught the attention of concerned adults across the nation. Quoting just one line from the report, nearly three in five, 57% U.S. teen girls felt persistently sad or hopeless in 2021. Double that of boys, representing a nearly 60% increase and the highest level reported over the past decade. The numbers may be more extreme than many expected, but there is no question this third decade in the new millennium is extraordinarily challenging for our young people. Our friends at Focus on the Family are determined to help. Joni DeBrito of Focus joined my colleague Bill Bunkley on Faith Talk WTBN in Tampa Bay. When we look at what's happening in the culture around us, you know, we think about our young people with so many children growing up with no fathers and then we see what's happening with all of the confusion that's being taught in our public schools. Is it any wonder that our kids are really in a very vulnerable uh, position? Why are so many people intentionally wanting to do harm to themselves? You know, I think your introduction was really true, that there is so much more there for especially younger people. Teens are at the highest risk for self-harm, and they are just absorbing so much information, and they're overwhelmed. They're overwhelmed with exposure to traumatic things that we didn't have to see on a daily basis. They're overwhelmed with the messages they're getting in the culture. They're confused. They're at a time when they are developing, and we 
all remember when we were teenagers, it can be a great time of confusion because you are changing in so many ways and your friends are changing, other things are changing around you. And so it used to be that people could go through those changes and have supportive people around them helping them through. Now they may or may not have those supportive people, but even if they have supportive people around them, typically they're getting so many messages from social media and from the news and exposure to traumatic things and so forth, and it makes the world feel like a very scary place for them. And so uh, self-harm is not in and of itself a mental health disorder, but it tends to go along with anxiety and depression and a number of other kinds of things, eating disorders, et cetera, where people might be struggling. Who is most at risk for self-harming behavior? Is it boys or girls? Is it middle school, high school, college? Mm -hmm. Any kind of distinctions there? Yes, it's more often women rather than men, but men still self-harm at a rate of about uh, 35% of the total self-injury cases. And then for sure the teenagers are at the highest risk, which an age of 13 is one that seems to be a really high-risk age. And I think that makes sense to all of us that have been through adolescence. That 13-year-old age, it's you're not quite, you're just getting out of childhood, you're not quite a full teenager. It's the first real teen year 13 is that first teen year and there's just so much change going on and a lot of our younger people these days for a variety of reasons partly because they might not have the support they need you mentioned maybe fathers not being in the home and even you know just you know maybe being in single family homes but they can be in two parent homes as well and just not have the support they need and they have so many questions and a lot of them just have not learned how to manage negative or disturbing emotions well. And so instead of the healthy thing to do, which is to talk things through and discuss them with friends and talk them over with trusted adults in your life, um, they turn to externalizing the negative emotions they feel by um, cutting themselves or burning or scratching themselves or doing other things that cause injury. They feel so disturbed emotionally and they can't quite get in touch with that and they don't possess the skills to get in touch with it in a healthy way. So instead, they externalize the pain and then they can feel it as a physical pain. And it actually, initially, kind of like drugs and alcohol give you an initial relief, it kind of gives them an initial relief. But of course, the long-term consequences are very significantly negative. Hmm. So you got kids. So I got a teenager and, you know, they just seem like sometimes they, they act a little bit weird. Uh, how do you determine whether it's just a, you know, sort of normal weirdness or when you're seeing a sign that somebody's really getting out there, it might be on the precipice of doing some self-harm? Mm-hmm. I think one of the things that we look for, Bill, is patterns. So we do know that teenagers especially can display all kinds of troubling uh, behaviors from time to time. But if they are transient and they just, you know, they're there for a week or so and they're gone, they change their hair and then they change it back or they isolate for a while, but then they're, you know, just about the time you're getting really concerned, they start reaching out to their friends. It's really when you see a pattern, a pattern of isolation, a pattern of lots of emotions 
that's difficult to deal with, a pattern of a kid using drugs and alcohol to make himself or herself feel better. When you see those patterns over, you know, several months, that's when you want to be concerned. Or if they are very vocal with you and are very open and say things like, I don't want to be here anymore, I hate myself, those kinds of things, yes, teenagers will sometimes say that when they're not in trouble, but we all have to pay attention always when they say those comments. And it certainly doesn't hurt to have someone with some mental health training to check them out. But, you know, kids will often tell you a lot. If you ask questions, open-ended questions, how are you doing? How are things going at school? Tell me about your friends. Often they will tell you. Some of them want to keep everything secret, but there are many of them who really want to talk if we just take the time to ask them some good open-ended questions. What I want to ask you now is, is that we talked about some of the signs and the symptoms, and once you're pretty sure that someone has entered that mode of self-harming, what do you do? Well, the first thing that you want to do is you want to talk to them. And obviously, it depends on, you know, what kind of person that person is. Maybe it's someone who very freely and easily talks. Maybe it's someone who is very quiet and shy and has been very isolated. So obviously, it depends on, you know, that person and how you approach that person. But one of the things that tends to help most people is to say how their behavior is affecting you. So to say things like, I am concerned, I'm a little bit afraid that maybe this might be going on with you. And most people will respond pretty well to hearing how their behavior might be affecting maybe a parent, a mom or a dad or a sibling or a friend or what have you. And so, you know, even if they have been very isolating and they tend to be quiet or maybe they might be trying to hide the behavior, what you want to do is say, here are the things I've seen that make me wonder what might be going on. Can you tell me? Can you tell me, should I be concerned, et cetera? And obviously, a lot of it has to do with kind of being able to judge that person's um, response as to whether you feel like it's honest or not. So it usually works best if it's someone that knows the person well that can ask that question, again, a parent or a youth pastor or someone, just to find out what might be going on. And by the way, this happens for adults as well, so I don't want it to sound like it's just a problem Mm -hmm, for teenagers. mm -hmm. It does affect all ages. But usually if someone's able to reach out and say, I am worried for you or I am a little bit concerned, and so maybe you can help me alleviate those concerns if we could just talk. Often people are able to talk. Now, if they're very secretive and very resistant and, you know, you say to them, I think I noticed some scars and I'd like to see if you have more or whatever, some of them will just, you know, clam up and say no. And that's kind of an indication because in most cases, if there wasn't anything there, people would be willing to show you. Coming up. Christian courage in an increasingly hostile world. I got a lot of Christians saying you're being alarmist. Things really aren't that bad. Well, here comes COVID and here comes race riots and the uh, militant wokeness now within institutions. Rod Dreher, when the Christian Outlook returns in a moment. Hi, it's Mike Gallagher. I start every day by reading through the stories at Daybreak Insider. It's a look at today's most compelling stories and provides responses from key conservatives in media and politics. Over a quarter million people get Daybreak Insider by email daily, and it's available to you at no cost. Go to daybreakinsider.com and simply plug in your email. That's daybreakinsider.com. In five minutes, you will be the most informed person in the office. That's daybreakinsider.com. 
Welcome back to The Christian Outlook, brought to you in partnership with the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy. Learn more at publicpolicy.pepperdine.edu. I'm Don Crow. Over the course of these last few years, we have witnessed quite a set of challenges to our nation. The government response to the pandemic, the BLM racially motivated violence that tore apart our cities, and of course the ongoing sexual and moral revolution. As we watch all of this unfold, Christians need to be prepared to live faithfully through challenging times. Rod Dreher's new book is titled, Live Not by Lies, and he's learning lessons from families that lived through the communist era. He joined Albert Moeller for his Thinking in Public program. This book is not only a, an argument, it's, it's very emotionally moving, and I think you probably intended it to be so. I did. Uh, This is really more a book of storytelling. The heart of the book is made of my interviews with Christians in the former Soviet bloc and in Russia who came through the communist yoke and who have stories about that, uh, that they want American Christians to know so we can prepare ourselves for what they see correctly, I think, as a different kind of totalitarianism that's coming upon us. I, I, I have to wonder if between the time you set out this argument and when we're having this conversation, you've had further thoughts about the distinction between hard and soft totalitarianism. Play that out a bit for us. I've been thinking about it for a while, and I finally sold the book proposal in early 2019, turned the manuscript in it and thought, you know, how am I going to sell this book to my fellow Christians? I believe the argument is solid that we're on the verge of a soft totalitarianism. But I remember with the Benedict option, I got a lot of Christians saying you're being alarmist. Things really aren't that bad. Well, then, since I turned the final manuscript in, here comes COVID, and here comes race riots and the uh, militant wokeness now within institutions, within uh, college campuses, within journalism, uh, within big business that's really transforming uh, these environments. I don't think now that I have nearly as much of a challenge uh, selling the argument to Christians who are the least bit observant as I would have just six, seven months ago. Yeah. Well, let's kind of trace this through an intellectual history for just a bit and the history of the 20th century. The Marxists were very frustrated that the revolution that became known in Russia as the Bolshevik Revolution, they thought it would happen in a city like London or uh, or Berlin, and especially the, the more industrialized, the more class-dominated and all the rest. It didn't happen. And by the time you get to the, the period between the two wars in the 20th century— and then especially afterwards, you've got uh, people on the left making the, the judgment that there, there's no way people are just too far along in a consumer society that there's going to be anything like a Bolshevik revolution in London or Washington or, you know, Chicago. And, and so instead, the European Marxists said, we've got to do the long march through the institutions, as you, as you use the language. But it seems to me that when you're talking about this soft totalitarianism, it's actually kind of the the backside of that. So if the Bolshevik revolution didn't happen in London and in Washington, or for that matter, in Rome and in Paris, uh, because we're kind of far along in a consumer society and all the rest, one of the interesting points you make, and we're reading the same stuff, is that it's that very consumer society that, that becomes the engines of the soft totalitarianism. Right, right. The Bolsheviks sought to, and the Orthodox Marxists sought to capture the means of economic production. What these neo-Marxists have done, and they did this in the 1960s, there was an interesting flip when everybody lost faith in the communist economic right. model. They decided to make uh, the capturing the means of cultural production their goal. 
And that's what happened. This is when identity politics in the late 60s, early 70s began to supplant class politics in the Marxist mind. And uh, it turns out that this goes quite well with advanced capitalism. You know, right. once, you, once you can tell people that who they are is what they, what they will, what they desire, well, you can sell them a lot of products that way. And uh, so this is why one of the reasons I think that we've, we've lived long enough to see big business, big capitalism become uh, march hand in hand with the woke revolution, because it's all about constructing an identity out of your own desires. But unfortunately, I believe that capitalism is going to see it has created the grounds for its own dissolution because of this. And and uh, the totalitarianism is there and, and Americans know it, but uh, are just kind of apparently OK with it. Yeah. Uh, so yeah. you t- Shoshana Zuboff in her book, uh, you know, The uh, Age of Surveillance Capitalism. I pointed many people to that book. Say, Look, it's, it, they're not going to come and take your freedom. You're giving it away. We all are, by the way. You know, if somebody from the government came to our front doors here in America and said, we would like to install this speaker, it's going to make your life, your consumer life so much easier. It's called Alexa. Make your life easier. It will also be listening to what you say and transmitting it back to a company. We would know right away what that was and we would tell them no. But if a big, big business can come to us and tell us it can make our lives easier, we'll pay them money to put it in our house. This is the way that they're doing this right under our nose, completely legally, with our consent. Coming up. I think the the left has all the cultural high ground now. Make no mistake about it. They are controlling all the institutions. More with Rod Dreher when the Christian Outlook continues in just a moment. Stay with us. As the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy enters our 25th anniversary year, We've remained committed to a single truth of world history, that ideas have consequences. To understand these ideas and their impact on today's politics, and to test them quantitatively, requires the unique curriculum we offer on our Malibu, California campus. Apply now for fall classes at pepperdine.edu slash SPP. That's pepperdine.edu slash SPP. Welcome back to The Christian Outlook. I'm Don Crow. As we look at this dynamic and challenging period of history we are living through, the Christian has both a great advantage and a particular challenge. The advantage, of course, is that this world is not our home. Come good, come ill, come what may, the genuine believer knows that the great hope is beyond this world. And the challenge is becoming all too clear. Convictional Christians are on a collision course with an increasingly intolerant left. Let's pick up with more of the conversation of Rod Dreher with Albert Moeller. I want to take us back into the book. There are certain books that I think at a certain moment are really, really helpful to the church. And I really believe that your book, Live Not My Lies, is one of those. Uh, I didn't have to be told where the title came from. Uh, A part of my intellectual adventure in life is that uh, through being a 16-year-old reading National Review magazine and the University Bookman and things like that, I came to know of Solzhenitsyn. And then, of course, he won the, the Nobel Prize for Literature. And it was, it was very much a part of international conversation. But then through being active in politics, I came to know, you know of uh, even the situation when uh, Gerald Ford refused to meet with Solzhenitsyn, you know, one of the great presidential errors of modern American history. But uh, Solzhenitsyn was just a part of how I learned to think 
in what I would say are profoundly more Augustinian terms. And, and it was as a, as a young evangelical Protestant kind of comes to terms with evil by reading Solzhenitsyn. This was his final address to the, to the Russian people, or the Soviet people. T- tell us what's going on when Solzhenitsyn says, live not by lies. Yeah, the, well, the Soviets were on the verge of kicking him out of the country, exiling him to the West. Last thing he wrote uh, in 1974, he sent a communique to them through Samizdat with, under the title, Live Not By Lies. It's a short little essay in which he told them, look, People may say that we can do nothing as ordinary people against this kingdom of lies, this totalitarian tyranny, but that's not really true. We can always refuse to offer our consent and our affirmation that what they're saying is true. He said, and I'm going to read this from the book, we are not called upon to step out onto the square and shout out the truth, to say out loud what we think. This is scary. We're not ready, he writes. But let us at least refuse to say what we do not think. And uh, that was the power of the powerless, to use a phrase that was used three years later by Václav Havel in a a famous essay he wrote to the Eastern European dissidents that made the same basic point as Solzhenitsyn, that, you know, when we are powerless to change a system, we at least can refuse to say what we do not think. Now, I think we're somewhere near the same age. Uh, And I I won't ask you, but I'm I'm 61. So... uh, the great fact of the Soviet Union, the massive fact of the Soviet Union, framed so much of my childhood and uh, and adolescence. And, uh, you know, I, I wanted to understand it, wanted to understand ideas. So I would read the Communist Manifesto. I, I, uh, I actually got a hold of, you know, other Soviet propaganda and just read it. And, and by the way, none of it, none of it made sense, including the fact that it, it, even a 15-year-old in the United States could figure out the only thing that was true of their five-year plans is that they never were successful at all. <laughs> but uh, but it just became you know, the, the, whole, the whole Soviet experiment of, of horrifying repression. And, uh, and yet, I just think most people who are half my age might as well be hearing about the Holy Roman Empire. No in other words, they, they just don't know and that worries me because it's it's it, it i i think it worries me the way that uh, so many of our jewish friends in their 90s are worried that this far from the holocaust people think of it like mesopotamia right right well this is why uh, the importance they stress the importance of cultural memory maintaining historical and cultural memory as a means of resistance Uh, In the book, I quote a passage from the Czech dissident novelist Milan Kundera, who is quoting, putting words in the mouth of uh, Gustav Hushak, who is one of the communist dictators in in Czechoslovakia. And he's addressing the youth, saying, children, don't look back. Keep going into the progressive future, because the memory of history is uh, is a weight on them and allows them to have have, uh, people who remember history. It gives them something uh, a perspective by which to judge the present. And so in in my book, Live Not By Lies, I had this amazing conversation with a young woman from California, 26 years old, college graduate, who happened to mention to me that she thought communism was a great idea, the brotherhood of man. What what could be uh, better than that? I looked at her and said, well, what about the gulags? She said, what? She honestly did not know about the gulags, did not know about the Soviet Union. Somebody had told her 
about communism and had given her the song and dance. But here she was, a college graduate in the United States of America, no idea. But now let's go back to what you were answering in the larger culture. I agree with you, by the way. Uh, but I want to come back after you say what you say and, and press the point. Go ahead. Yeah, yeah. well, I, I think the, the left has all the cultural high ground now. Make no mistake about it. They are controlling all the institutions. And uh, it frustrates me to know when that uh, conservative Christian friends of mine think that if we can only get the politics right, even at this late date, they think if we can only get the politics right, politics can turn it around. Look, it's important to vote. I mean, I, I, you look at the future of Christianity, I see the federal judiciary as being the last line of defense for Christian schools and institutions in the future to come. Nevertheless, uh, politics and law cannot save us if the culture is rotten from within. And right now, I see so many Christian families who are looking to, for their for there to be a political solution, or they, they blame their pastors for not doing enough, when in fact they ought to be looking, we ought to be looking in interiorly and seeing what can we do in our families and in our churches and communities right now to build that resilience. I realize this. One other thing I want to throw out is that uh, I think Francis Fukuyama is right in his foreign affairs article several several years ago when he said that the only conservative grounding of any society in the modern age is a middle class. And if you eliminate the middle class or you gain the influence of the middle class, you eventually will determine the, uh, the, the future of the society. And the reason I raise that is because you mentioned the middle class in Russia, but it was very small, very, very small. And uh, but you look at the middle class now in the English-speaking world, and uh, it's basically giving up all the, I mean, you've, the left, the bourgeois values. Well, but the middle class values of marriage, Fidelity, investing in children, uh, thrift, hard work, labor, uh, all those things are just being dissipated before our eyes. They were destroyed in the Soviet Union, but they're being eliminated here. Coming up. If we are going to have any hope at all of preserving Christianity, it has to begin by rebuilding the family. When the Christian Outlook returns in a moment. Welcome back to The Christian Outlook. I'm Don Crow. It can be daunting to watch the world around us changing so quickly. But the role that God has for each of us can really be quite simple. Renewal of personal conviction in front of Christ. And a renewal of commitment to the family unit as we work from there. Let's catch a few more minutes of Rod Dreher's conversation with Albert Moeller talking about Live Not by Lies. We'll pick up with Dreher's response to Moeller on the erosion of you know, you're saying that reminds me of going, my having gone a few years ago to a conservative evangelical college uh, to give a speech. This was maybe seven years ago. And uh, just having dinner with some of the professors uh, before the speech, and I was asking them, what are you seeing among the students on campus? And one of the professors said, my greatest worry for them is that none of them will be able to form stable families. I looked at him astonished. I said, but this is a conservative uh, evangelical Midwestern college. How is this possible? He looked at me with tears in his eyes and said, because most of these kids have never seen a stable family. Now I looked around the table and all the other professors were nodding. And that really kind of red-pilled me because I, I had this romantic idea that this conservative evangelical school, this was going to be a bastion. But this man was telling me that, no, the culture has degraded so much, the culture of family, that these kids don't even, it doesn't even make sense to them. 
And uh, I, I think that we are, we are, if we are going to have any hope at all of preserving Christianity, uh, or even a memory of Christianity, it has to begin by rebuilding the family. And that begins by making choices ourselves and reinforcing those choices and helping young people to, to uh, know, to, to value marriage and, and having children and helping them. Do- I uh, cannot recommend this book with more enthusiasm, Live Not by Lies by Rod Dreher, a manual for Christian dissidents. Uh, Rod, you're a friend. I'm very thankful for you as a uh, co-laborer in this great task of building the resistance, and, and you've done a really good job now with, uh, uh, with this book, Joining the Benedict Option, and raising a lot of these issues. And you know, as a Baptist, talking to uh, uh, an Eastern Orthodox uh, believer, uh, I'm in the position of saying, I can go with you all the way on this book in a way that I actually couldn't with the Benedict you I appreciate what I mean. you saying that. And, you know, yeah. one thing that I, I learned from this research and the travels in the Eastern Bloc is that when these Christians were thrown into prison, the denominational lines collapsed. It wasn't that they gave up denominational distinctives at all, but it's that the real, the deep brotherhood they had in Jesus Christ came forth and they helped each other and they prayed with each other. And it made me realize that when the secret police came for them, it didn't come because they were Protestant. It didn't come because they were Catholic or Orthodox. The secret police came because they were followers. For a link to the complete conversation with Rod Dreher, go to ChristianOutlook.com. That wraps up this edition of the Christian Outlook. If you enjoyed the program, take a moment to subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and Google Play. And never miss these and other great conversations. Start at ChristianOutlook.com. Thanks for joining us today. Our program has been brought to you in part through our partnership with the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy. For executive producer Russell Schubin and producers Charlie Richards and David Posehn and Michael Cook, I'm Don Crow. Join us again next time for The Christian. So she ran away in a Let's see, if something costs less, but people are happier with it, that sounds like something to look into, and that's MediShare. Maybe you've heard switching to MediShare to pay for health care can save the typical family 500 bucks a month, and that's huge. But it's also true that people are way more satisfied after making the switch, too. The customer satisfaction rate for MediShare is double that of the typical health insurance plan, double MediShare works. It's been around for more than a quarter century, and members have shared more than $3 billion of each other's bills. People love having telehealth and a huge nationwide PPO network. So, yeah, you can save a ton and like it better. Imagine being happy with how you're taking care of your health care. So if you're self-employed or part of the gig economy or you just want a plan you're happy with, you can call right now and get a price within two minutes. A very, very smart use of two minutes. Here's the number you need. 888-SHARE-19. That's 888-SHARE-19. 888-SHARE-19.